This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. <laughs> the name of tonight's share is called implosion. Everyone, anyone ever hear the word implosion? Implosion is the, is the actual opposite of explosion. Explosion is when something explodes and everything from the explosion goes out. Implosion is when something explodes and everything from the explosion goes in. Okay? Okay, that's the subject that we're going to talk about tonight. Now, how does that have to do with anything with us? Okay, so, we're going to go back a little bit to Purim. We're going to connect it to Pesach. It's definitely a very original share. I've never given it before. I gave a little bit of it on Shabbos, but it wasn't taped, so I think it's very important that it is taped, and that's on Kalal Um It's, I think, a very, very, very important share for everyone. So it's like this. The question is like this. In the Megillah, we know that Haman came from Amalek, right? Haman, we know, came from Esau, thank you, came from Amalek. And, really soda? So, I can only drink diet, so I can't drink coke. So, Haman's idea was to make the Seuda with Achashverosh, because Haman understood that this is a fantastic thought. It's just a fantastic thought. Haman understood what implosion means. What did Haman understand? <clears throat> Achashverosh said, when Haman came up with the idea to, to destroy the Jews, Achashverosh said, this is before the party, Mitzrayim didn't, wasn't successful, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't successful, nobody was ever successful, no enemy that attacked the Jews, even Amalek, was ever successful in destroying the Jews. What makes you think that me and you, Akshver said, that we're going to be successful in destroying the Jews? Nobody ever destroyed the Jews. So Haman, who came from Amalek, said, they all attacked the Jews from the outside. Explosion, from the outside. Like a bomb that you put outside a car, blows up the car. They all attacked the Jews from the outside. The Jews have an inherent power that when you attack them from the outside, they all get together and they pray to God, right? And they have the power of getting together, of breaking the Gzeiro. He said, <coughs> Amalek understood that the only way to destroy the Jews was from inside. So his idea was not to make Gzeiro to kill the Jews. That never worked. His idea was that the Jews should kill themselves. In what way should they kill themselves? By coming to the party and by assimilating, right? So they're going to make Hashem very angry. And within two, three generations of the assimilation, that they're becoming like Gayim, there'll be no more Jews. Like the assimilation that's happening in America. They keep marrying non-Jews, keep marrying non-Jews, right? The Holocaust didn't work. That was the Nazis from without, from outside. Rav Noah Weinberg said the, the assimilation Holocaust is much more dangerous and much worse than the Holocaust that the Nazis made because the assimilation Holocaust is coming from within us, not from without. So Haman's plan, master plan, <clears throat> was to get the Jews to come to this party and by coming to this party and drinking from the Kalim of the Beis Hamikdash to get Hashem angry and that they would assimilate and they would destroy themselves. And Mordechai realized... Mordechai realized that this was a greater danger than anything that ever happened. Baharaya, how do you know that's true? 
Because God never signed a gezeira, a decree, to destroy the Jews. When Nebuchadnezzar came, right, it wasn't signed. When when Paro came, there was no decree signed. When I'm, never before that Hashem signed the dotted line. So Haman was right on target. He was right. They went to the party. They imploded. They were destroying themselves from within. The the the, 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 the Nazis, so to say, the Amalekis, they weren't attacking us. They were like, what's going on? We're eating together. Let's sing together. Let's drink together. Just the opposite. And and therefore, the Mordechai realized that this would be the end of the Jewish nation. And he was right, because because of the assimilation that they were doing, Hashem signed this Gezerah. So we were done. We were donsky. Haman and Achashverosh, Amalek, had won this war by getting us to come to their party, to hang out, to chill with them, go to their clubs, listen to their rap music, dress like them, go online with them, Facebook with them, do all the other good things with them, right? And Mordechai understood that that's a bigger danger than being attacked from outside. There's no question that if in America, all the guy would get up against the Jews, all the reformed, conservative, assimilated Jews would all come back to, to Yiddishkeit and become one. There's no question. The, um, the worst thing that can happen is when, the guy, when they become our friends. Because then we, we implode, we, we destroy ourselves. And this is what happened here. So Mordechai was brilliant, guys. The Bnei Yisrael were angry at him. And they said, why do you keep getting Haman angry? You're getting us into trouble. Don't go outside when he's outside. Right? We understand you don't want to bow down to him. So stay home. Stay home. Stay in your house. Stay in the base medrash. Every time he walks by the base medrash, you got to walk outside and say, I'm not bowing down to you and aggravate him. I, we understand you're a big child. You don't want to bow down to him. He had a, he had a thing on it. He was wearing an avoid of the book. And that's okay. You're but you have to go outside and antagonize the man? The answer is yes. Because what did Mordechai do? Every time he saw Haman, he antagonized him. And he antagonized him and aggravated and agitated him so much that Haman forgot how to destroy the Jews. He went ahead and instead of imploding, which he had going great, that party was the perfect idea of destroying the Jews, he got so aggravated at Mordechai that he forgot his plan. And he signed a piece of paper to kill the Jews from outside. And that was the end of him. Because the minute you attack the Jews from outside, when they're not destroying themselves, then they fast for three days, and they daven, and they break the Xera, and you end up hanging. <coughs> so Mordechai was brilliant. He took the Amalek's brilliance, and they were winning. And he, not that he stayed in the base medish, but he followed Haman around the whole day until he got him so agitated that he ran to Achashverosh and said, I want you to ride Xerah to destroy them, to wipe them out. Mothers, children, husbands, everybody. The minute he did that, it was Lobadam. He wrote La'avdam. The minute, it's beautiful. The minute Haman wrote La'avdam, listen to this. The minute Haman wrote to destroy the Jews, that was the dumbest thing he could have written. If he would have left everything alone, we would have kept going to their parties, kept hanging out with them, and within three generations, 
Amalek would have won. So when he wrote Lo'avdom to destroy the Jews and kill the Jews, it was Lo'ivadam. It was not with blood. It was not written forever. The Xero wasn't written forever because he wrote Xero from without. If he would have left everything alone, he would have made another couple of parties. We would have been Dunsky. We would have been gone. We would have been destroyed. So Mordechai pushed him so hard that the dope lost his, lost his temper and went against his whole master plan. And once he went against his whole master plan, he was totally lost. It's a mayudik of art. What Mordechai, and that explains the Jews were all yelling at Mordechai, what are you doing? Don't aggravate the man. Mordechai had to aggravate the man. Because by aggravating the man, the man wrote against the Jews. By writing against the Jews, then they all went to fast and daven, and that's what broke the Xero. And that was Mordechai's plan, and Ataka worked. So, we see from here that Amalek's koyach, Amalek's strength, is to destroy the Jews from within. Not by Holocaust gas chambers, because that doesn't work, as you can see. But by assimilation, by suffake, by making the Jews doubt that they have the right religion, because they're getting along with all the Christians, with all the Muslims, with everybody else. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe they're right. They're nice people. They're doing the right thing. Maybe, maybe. So, so Amalek, the word Amalek, Ayin, Mem, Lamed, Kuf, equals 240. Ayin is 70. Mem is 40. 70, 40 is 110. Lamed is 30 is, is 140. And Kuf is 100. It's 240. Amalek equals 240. The word Safek, which means to doubt, not to be sure, to have a suffix, equals also 240. It's 60 is, is Samach, Pei is 80, is 140, and Kuf is 100, is 240. Amalek is equal to Suffolk. What is Amalek? Amalek is doubt. When a person begins to doubt himself, when a Jew begins to doubt who Hashem is, when a Jew begins to doubt his religion, then Amalek has got you. So Amalek equals Suffolk. So I'm going to tell you something fascinating. If you look in, <clears throat> two weeks ago we said Pasha Zachar, I never gave the shit that I'm giving tonight. This is a brand, brand spanking new. If you look in the Pasha of Pasha Zachar and Pasha Kiseitse, how did Amalek attack us? And it says the following. Zachar, remember, Remember what Amalek did when you left Mitzrayim. Asher Korcha Vaderech. Korcha means he happened to have met you. He happened to have met you on the road. But Korcha, the Shoresh of the word Korcha is Kerach. Kerach is ice. So, how was ice? What does ice have to come? What have to do here? The, the, the suffix, the doubt, if this is the right religion, if I'm doing the right thing, self-doubt. When a person doubts themselves, they don't have self-esteem, what happens? They become cold. Cold, karcha, is depression. Fire, fire, warmth is simcha. Coldness is depression. When a person has doubts, when a person has no self-esteem, you become depressed and you become cold. When um, Amalek comes from Esav, 
when Yaakov had the fight with Esav's Malach, right? That's Amalek. That was the fight that they had. He forced the Malach. This is a fantastic Kabbalah, beautiful pshat. He forced the Malach to give him a bracha. At the end, the Malach said, let me go. He said, I'm not letting you go till you give me a bracha. And the Malach had to go. So the Malach gave him a bracha. Don't call yourself Yaakov anymore. Call yourself Yisrael. And that's a very big bracha. Yashar Kale. Once he gave the bracha, he couldn't take it back. So Amalek, Esav, gave us an unbelievable bracha. They gave us a name, Yashar Kale. And he can't take it back once he gave a bracha. So what did he do? So what did he do? He said, I'm going to attack that brother. <laughs> he said, I will take this Yisrael and I'm going to make them cold. How do you make the word Yisrael cold? Yud, Shin, Resh, Alid, Aleph, Lamed. If you take the word Esh, the Aleph and the Shin, which is the fire. Aish is fire. If you take the fire out of Yisrael, what do you have left? Yud. Right? The shin is out. Reish. Lamed. 240. Amalek. Safek. When you take the fire out of a Jew, when you take the Aish out of a Yisrael, you take the fire, the Torah, which is the fire, the belief in Hashem, what happens? He, beha- he begins to have a suffix. When you take the fire and you make the word Yisrael cold, you are now part of Amalek. You are part of suffix. So once we got the bracha, he couldn't take the bracha away, but he can take the fire away. And the, when you take the fire away, the self-confidence, the, the Torah and the mitzvahs that a Jew does, he becomes cold. When he becomes cold, he becomes suffolk. When he becomes suffolk, he becomes depressed. When he becomes depressed, he can be destroyed from within. Now, <clears throat> I have said in many of my shiurim, and the Zayah says this very often, that the physical world and the spiritual world are mirrored. We know that. There is one disease today, Loyalenu, which is called cancer, which doesn't have a cure. Why? Why doesn't cancer have a cure? If you have strep, you go to the doctor, you find out you have strep, they give you an antibiotic, the strep is gone. <clears throat> if you have the flu, you lay in bed for two weeks or a week, you suffer, you take thermoflu, whatever it is, you suffer, your body, it's a virus, so your body has to fight it off itself, your body fights it. <coughs> if you have pneumonia, or bronchitis, you take an antibiotic called penicillin, and the, the antibiotic for a week or two weeks, whatever it is, gone. You take the z pack, gone. So why isn't there an antibiotic for cancer? You have to cut out the cell, burn the cell, shrink the cell, but there's no cure for cancer. And the answer is, and you could ask any doctor, because the cancer cell that's killing you is yours. 
and your body can't fight its own cell. So, a strep bacteria is not yours. It's a foreign bacteria. A foreign bacteria we can destroy with a foreign medicine. Strep is foreign. Pneumonia is foreign. Bronchitis is foreign. A flu is foreign. These are all bacteria that you either touched and put your hands in your mouth, you breathed it in. They are foreign enemies. And of outside enemy, your body can destroy with help. But an implosion, a cancerous cell, which is your cell, your body can't fight itself. And therefore, when you kill a cancerous cell, you have to kill many other cells around it. Because your body says, he's one of us. We don't destroy ourselves. So therefore, Amalek understood that coming against a Jew from the outside, the Jew has an antibiotic. Tefillah. To heal him. Learning Torah. Doing tshuva. Doing mitzvahs. But if he could get the Jew himself to destroy himself, that's a cancer. That's a spiritual cancer. And there's nothing you can do against that. So Haman understood that. And that's why he tried to make us assimilate. And as long as he was killing us from within, we were done. But then Mordecai forced him to change his way to come from without. From without, Tzvila will take our antibiotics. We'll dive and we'll fast and you're dead. So if you look in the Pasek very clearly, it says that he came to cool us off. To take that age, to go inside us, so that we should each one of us destroy ourselves. Who does he go after to destroy like that? The strong guys? No. Who did he go after? Who did Amalek attack? If you look in the Medrash, it says that there were many Jews that were surrounded by the clouds. And then they covered. But there were some Jews that weren't sure about what's going on. So they were outside the cloud. And the Torah tells us, that he happened upon the way and he struck those of you who were hindmost, which means outside, in the back. And they were tired and weak. And they were separated from the rest of Klai Yisrael. Every, and, and I spoke about this on Shabbos, every person, every human being needs to belong. We all need to belong. And if you belong to a group, usually you're happy. And HaKadosh Baruch created an Am called Klai Yisrael coming out of Mitzrayim that all of us belong to. As you know, Achtos, you went to camp, Achtos is very important. Every person, and we learned this since you're a kid, every Jew is a cell, is a piece of the Jewish nation. We're all connected. We're all connected. Every Jew is connected. Who does Amalek go after? <coughs> Amalek goes after the person who's not connected. Because the person who's not connected to Judaism, to the Klau, needs to be connected. So, cults. Why are cults so big? For the need to be part of a cult. Even though the cult's not good for you, the need to be part of a cult, you're part of a cult. Why are gangs in California, these are kids who are part of gangs who they get shot all the time, they get killed all the time. Why would you want to belong to something that you're going to get shot and killed? Because 
I am ready to die as long as I belong to something. And that's why gangs are as powerful as gangs. And that's why there are sports fans. Why, why am I a Yankee fan? Think about why we're sports fans. I'm a Yankee fan, you're a Met fan, you're a Giant fan, you're a Jet fan, you're a Ranger fan. Hold on one second. What does that mean I'm a fan? Do they send me a check? Do they, when I was sick, did they send me a how you feeling card? Do they know anything about me? Do they care about me? Do they like me? Why would I support and talk about and listen to and darshan and read about people who couldn't care less about me? Who probably half of them are anti-Semites and wouldn't even talk to me. I remember as a kid, I went down to get a, an autograph from, from Patrick Ewing and he wouldn't even look at me. The big anti-Semite. So, why would I, why, why was I a New York Knicks fan? And the answer is, why am I a Yankee fan? Because, <clears throat> the minute I'm a Yankee fan, I'm connected to every single Yankee fan. I belong to a group called Yankee fans. So, even if we don't know each other, and I meet you on the street on a bus, and you're wearing your Yankee cap, and I'm wearing my Yankee cap, we're in love. Love at first sight. You're a Yankee fan? Hey, I'm a Yankee. How long? Since when? 1992. Oh, 1990. I don't even know you. I don't know if you're a killer or a murderer or what you want to do to me, but I'm a Yankee fan. And automatically, we hate the other guy sitting across the bus who's wearing a Met hat. Why do you hate him? You don't know the guy. But he's part of a group called Met fans. I'm part of a group called Yankee fans. So the human being will spend $150 to go to a game to buy a... You uh, $200 to buy a champion Yankee hat with a Yankee shirt. Hey, man, you're wearing a Yankee hat with a Yankee shirt. How, exactly how much salary are they paying you? You don't even know how to play ball. What are you wearing a Yankee hat for? You couldn't hit a ball past the home plate. Right? So, because the minute I put that hat on, ah, I belong to tens of thousands of people. And that makes me feel good the difference between my generation and the generation today why kids are struggling so much with drugs and everything that they're struggling and my generation didn't struggle with that because the street when I grew up the street there was no group in the street in other words a kid that was doing drugs when I grew up was one in a million and he was in the street by himself so why would I join him? I don't belong. It's not belonging to a group of people. He's an idiot. Now I'm an idiot. Understand? But today, in the street, is a group of drug addicts, a group of kids at risk. So when in yeshiva, you tell me I don't belong because I would talk to a girl or I, or I didn't learn right, and the Rebbe says, we don't want him in yeshiva anymore, which means that I know it's the biggest mistake in the world because it's Haman. It's Mamish, it's Mamish Amalek. Because what you're telling me is that I don't belong in yeshiva. But I, as a human being, need to belong to a group. So if you're telling me I don't belong to this group, yeshiva group, I need to find another group. So now I'm in the street. And today, the street has a huge group. So I just leave the yeshiva group because my Rebbe said I don't belong. 
And now I'm in this new group that's smoking and girls and drugging and, and drinking and playing poker and doing all this other stuff because I don't belong here. I need to belong. We all need to belong somewhere. And more than anyone else in the world, the Jew needs to belong. That's why Jews assimilate more than anybody else. Because in our spiritual DNA, Hashem put a crazy need to belong to Christ's role. And if you don't belong to Israel, you still have that crazy need to belong. So you will assimilate. You will look for a Christian to marry. You will look for a cult. Uh, there's an ashram up in the mountains where I am. It's full, full this ashram of Jews. Full. What are Jews doing in an ashram? And the answer is that they don't feel comfortable in the Jewish nation for whatever reason. They need to belong. So if the Huji Buji Kuji has an ashram with a bunch of Meshugam running around chanting, okay, I want to be there. Full of Jews. Because in our DNA, more than in anyone else's DNA, we need to belong. And therefore, when we don't belong, we have no self-esteem and no self-respect. And then we start to do things that are totally out of out of where we should be to get that self-esteem. We think a nice car and we think drugs and we think a girl and we think all these things which are all chitzanias. They're all, I call it the frame. Our generation is very busy with the frame. But we forgot about the picture. If you have an art gallery, and I don't know if any of you guys sell art, but this I learned a long time ago about art because I buy art. I'm very into art. The nicer the frame, the worse the picture. <laughs> Mona Lisa's frame is nothing. Mona Lisa doesn't need a good frame because it's a Mona Lisa. So if you walk into a store and it has this crazy gold, gorgeous frame, the painting is worth $200. If the painting is really worth something, the frame is garnished because what do you need a frame? The frame just has to hold the picture. So we, as, we this generation, we are so busy building the frame. I got the best girl, I got the best car, I got the best house, I got the best clothing, I got my... I was just, I was talking to the girls, you guys might not understand this. There's a company called Juicy, you all heard of it. Juicy, it's a, it's a company, it's a designer called Juicy. Okay, you don't know about it, good. <coughs> um, every girl, every girl wants to wear Juicy. Now, if I were to have the same jacket, it doesn't say Juicy on it, right? And try to sell it, I couldn't sell it for nothing. Not for a dollar. But the minute I put the word juicy on it, and that's any brand, right? So why do you need, if I'm selling a pair of jeans that has a brand name, or a pair of jeans next to it that doesn't have a brand name, you're going to buy the one with the brand name, even though it's the same pair of jeans. Why? Because the minute you wear those jeans that say Lee on them, you now belong to a group of people who wear Lee jeans. You now belong to a group who wear Juicy. You now belong to a group who wear Prada. Now, the Prada shoes that you're buying might be the exact same shoes as the uh, Bloomingdale shoe, right? And you come to the store, and there's a Bloomingdale shoe, and there's a Prada shoe, and they look exactly alike. Once it's Bloomingdale's inside, once it's Prada, with a little signal. Uh, now, you're going to buy the Prada if you can afford it. We're talking about if you can afford it. Now, why are you buying the Prada? Because the minute you put on that pair of Prada shoes, you are now part of a gang called rich people who wear Prada. And that makes you feel... That you belong, just like the Yankee cap makes you a Yankee player. 
And the dumbest thing I've ever seen, if you think about it, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to explain to you a psych, and this is, this is Amalek. I'm on a bus in New York in the summer, and there's like 10 women, they're on their way to the Yankee game. And 8 out of the 10 women are wearing t-shirts, but in the back of the t-shirt says Jeter. <laughs> and I'm like, Jeter's not a woman. He's a guy. So, what wearing someone else's name on the back of your shirt means that you have no self. Today's Jeter. When Jeter gets traded off the Yankees, some other superstar, she's going to have a different name in the back. Where's your name? You don't feel that having your name on the back of your sweater on the bus is going to get any attention. You don't feel that your name is worth anything. You don't feel that you exist. But Jeter, who doesn't even know you, who's a guy, that's what you want to wear on the back of your shirt. Or a Gap sweater that says Gap. Your name is not Gap. <laughs> but if you wear a Gap sweater, means subconsciously that you belong to all the other people who shop in Gap. <laughs> this was Coca-Cola's idea when they came out with Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola was the first one that pushed brand. And they would show all kinds of pictures of people on horses, climbing mountains, in the snow, all kinds of people drinking Coca-Cola. So that when you drank Coca-Cola sitting in yeshiva, in the base medrash, you were picturing, I belong to all the people who drink Coca-Cola. The, 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 the guy on the horse, the guy climbing the mountain, the water skier. And this is, I'm just bringing you a proof that we need to belong. Marlboro. <laughs> Marlboro cigarettes, the most famous advertisement. Right? The guy's a cowboy. Everybody buys Marlboro and they think they're a cowboy. <laughs> you, would know, you wouldn't even know how to sit on a horse. But the advertisement over and over is a guy on a horse and a guy on a horse. And every guy wants to be a cowboy. We all want to be a cowboy. What? The guy actually died from lung cancer. That the horse or the guy? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. Who said he smoked? He was a model. Whatever. Does, all right, doesn't matter. But the bottom line is that every person needs to belong. And if you don't belong to Klal Yisrael, where you need to belong, then you're going to find a bad place to belong. And Every person needs to know that we all have crazy potential. And that, and I'll explain to you the, the, the connection. Amalek saw the Jews struggling that were outside the cloud. They went after them and put doubt in your head. When you have doubt in your head, I can't do this, I can't learn, I can't dive in, I'm a loser... It doesn't have to be only dominating and learning. Altogether in life, I can't work. I'm not. I'm ugly. Nobody likes me. That's a mulling. That's suffering. That makes you car. That makes you cold. That destroys you from within. And there's nothing that can help you. And I'll tell you something very fascinating. Um, when you're cold, a mulling makes you cold. What do they tell you when you're cold to do? They tell you to wear layers, layers, shirt, undershirt, shirt, sweater. Outerwear sweater, jacket, coat. The colder you are, the more layers a person has to wear. The Satan tells you the same thing. The more doubt, the more depression, the more stuff you need to keep you warm. So you'll start smoking because you want to belong. 
with everybody. And, you know, I make fun of this all the time. There's a kid here in yeshiva a while back that I wanted to, that I needed to talk to. Um, he was angry at me for something, whatever it was. And I, I needed to break the barrier between me and him because I needed to, to, I knew his father very well. I needed to be Makar of him. And I said, the messages that I wanted to talk to him, he ignored me. No matter what I did, I could not get to this kid. Now, this kid was a big smoker. So I came up with a brilliant idea one night. He stands outside and smokes. I came up with a brilliant idea one night. I took a cigarette, and I walked over to him. He was smoking, and I said, hey, this guy will not talk to me, right? I said, could you do me a favor? Could you give me a light? <laughs> so instead of smacking the cigarette out of my hand, he said, Sure. Because the rule is, in the cigarette smoking guys, when someone asks you for a light and your cigarette's lit, you must light a cigarette. Even if he's a Nazi and, and you're a Jew, he'll light your cigarette. So, so his cigarette, you have to light my cigarette so you all know that you have to bend over and look in each other's eyes when the guy's like. <laughs> and once he got to look in my eyes, he fell in love with me and I was able to talk to him. I broke the ice. No matter how I tried to break that, I couldn't break that. But once I became part of that gang, part of that group, I'm a smoker. So that, once I'm a smoker, I'm, I'm, I'm one of 12 million people. We're all a chavra. And don't tell me anyone who smokes that that's not the feeling you get. When you smoke, you feel like I am a smoker. I am part of a large group. And when a guy smokes a joint, I am a drug addict and I am part of a large group. And I'm an alcoholic. I'm part of a large group. And I'm a, a card player. I'm a gambler, right? You come into Atlantic City and you're a gambler and you sit down at a casino. I hate to say it. You feel like you belong. It's geschmack. If you're a gambler, it's geschmack. It's like, it's like coming to shul and you're the 10th guy in the minion. <laughs> it's amazing. You walk in there and your adrenaline is pumping because there's 2,000 people in the room that are just like you. And no matter how much of an introvert that you don't talk to anybody, once you sit at that card table, the guy next to you and anyone at the table, you may never talk to anyone. But to them, you'll talk, can I get you a drink? Can I get you something? Everybody, everybody's friends at the table. Yarmulke, no yarmulke, black, white, green, Chinese, it don't make a difference. Once you're at the table, you're part of that chev, you're part of the belong. And Haman understood this. Haman understood this. And that's why he made the Mishnah by Achish He understood that the Jew wants to belong more than anybody else. But really, what happens afterwards, guys, and, and I deal with a lot of kids, <coughs> after the drugs, and after the girl, and after the drinking, and after all these outer coats that you're trying to put on to make you feel good about yourself because you have low self-esteem. When you look in the mirror, everyone around you is saying, you're beautiful, you're great, you're unbelievable, you're potential, you're brilliant, right? Well, I'm great, right? But that's the frame of the mirror. You only see yourself and you're like, I'm ugly. I'm a loser. And everyone around the edges of the mirror are screaming at you, you're great, you're great, you're great. But that's the frame. You're looking at the mirror yourself and, and you don't feel good about yourself. So after the girls and the drinks and the drugs and the movies and the DVDs that you watched all night and, 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 and <laughs> where did I'm only get brilliant? <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> yeah. I belong. I am on Facebook. Automatically, if I am, people ask me, are you on Facebook? No. They walk away. Because <laughs> I'm not part of the group. But if I would say, yes, really? 
How do I get you? How do I become your friend? How do I sign on? How do I get to you? I, don't, I forgot the word that they use, whatever it is. It's all of a sudden, I'm part of 20,000, 200 million people. I'm on Facebook. And a lot of kids start on Facebook because they don't belong. Because at school they don't feel like they belong. And at home they don't feel like they belong. And we all need to belong. So I'll go to Facebook and I'll talk to people that might be pedophiles and destroy me and kill me and, and cut me to little pieces and put me in different boxes and ship me all over New York and all over America. I'll do that. You know why? Because I want to belong. So I go into a chat room and talk to 30, 40, 50 people in the chat room. 50 people in the chat room. You know, you come into the chat room. I'm one in the chat room. Hi, this is that. And everyone's like, hi. And you're like, there are 49 people that like me. 48 of those people are from Mars. They're not even human. You're talking to a Martian chat room. You have no idea who you're talking to. Killers, rapists, murderers, who knows what, right? But you don't care because... You want to belong. Crazy need to belong. It's a crazy need. And the need is there for the good. That you should have that crazy need to belong to Hashem. And Amalek's Kayach is... Facebook, you created an amazing thing. I have 900 friends. You have 900 friends? How are you going to send them all birthday cards? <laughs> what are you going to do with 900? Who ever had 900 friends? The Gemara says if you have one good friend, you have something unbelievable. With nine good, I belong. I have 900 people, and I'm, tomorrow I'm going to have 1,100, and I'm going to have 1,500. And it, it totally destroys us and takes us down. Now, let me tell you why it doesn't work. Let me tell you something fascinating. So why don't the drugs, the girls, the movies, the Internet, all this stuff, right? guy does drugs. He's doing pills, or he's doing, he's doing hashish, or whatever he's doing. When he wakes up from it, you ask any drug addict, when he wakes up from it, he doesn't feel good. Now, if these things were really what they're supposed to be, then when you wake up from it, you should be healed. I'm depressed. I don't like myself. I don't like the whole world. Okay. I'm popping oxys. I'm popping this. I'm shooting up heroin. I'm doing coke. Right? Okay. Now you did it. So now afterwards, why are you falling into a deeper depression? I did one pill, now I need to do four pills. And next week I need eight pills, and soon I OD and I'm dead. Why did you, why'd you OD and, and die? If, if this is the answer to make you feel good, then when the pill wears off, you should be fixed. And we all know that you start off with one shot, then you need two shots, then you need five shots. Same thing with drinking. I need one cup, and then I need five. So, it's not helping. You know why it's not helping? I'm going to tell you something you never heard in AA or you never heard in rehab. Why doesn't it help? And the answer is that clothing that you wear doesn't make you warm. What does clothing do? It keeps in your heat. Clothing keeps in your heat. Put clothing on a dead body And the body doesn't get warm because the body's cold. Put clothing on a piece of ice and the ice don't get warm. So the warmth of putting on layers, right? Putting on layers, the warmth that's that's there is from within. And if you're cold from within and you have suffolk and you have doubt and you take a drug, so you're cold and you're putting a coat on something that's cold can't fix you. It's not going to make you warm. The drink's not going to make you warm. The girl's not going to make you warm. 
to playing cards and winning the hand of poker where everywhere you go like this. Right? That's the hug. And you look everyone in the face and like, I beat you all. And you pull it to yourself. That power that I won, I'm special, doesn't last. Because it's a moment and it's not real. You're not special. The cards were special. You're not brilliant. You got lucky. So at the end of, the, of it all, you have nothing. So all these coats that we put on, the person who's not happy, he's got that beautiful woman and he's got the beautiful car and he's got the beautiful house. And I remember as a kid, you know, I, I used to watch The Wizard of Oz. I was, I was amazed by that movie. And I was absolutely in love with Dorothy. In love. I love Dorothy. There's no place like home, right? She went to the wizard. She killed the wicked witch of the West. She was, she was like my dream girl. I was a kid, I was a little kid, you know? Wizard of Oz. Some kids like the witch, but you know, those kids, those kids grew up differently. Some kids like the monkeys, you know? There were some weird kids in my class. The one kid liked the munchkins, whatever they were called. But I liked Dorothy very much. Now, Dorothy, now, I want to tell you something very serious. Dorothy, I'm telling you something, an impression that was left for me as a child. Jar- Dorothy's name was Judy Garland. That was the actress. Very beautiful. And to me, it's a Dekista because Dorothy represented everything good, right? And then one day, I read in the newspaper that Judy Garland committed suicide. And my whole world exploded. How could... Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz be depressed. We're off to see the wizard. Follow the, follow the yellow brick road. Right? It's the happiest girl. I didn't understand acting. The happiest woman in the world. Right? She closed her eyes. She put her feet together. There's no place like home. And she was home in Kansas. Right? This was magic. This was... And then the headlines was that Judy Garland overdosed on sleeping pills and committed suicide and left a letter how depressed she was. And I said to myself, how could Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz be depressed? She had everything. She was a superstar actress in Hollywood. And the answer is that Hollywood is this clothing. But inside, it was all an act. Inside, she was cold. So you could be an actress in Hollywood with everything, and kill yourself. And so did Elvis Presley. And I hate to use Goyish names, but I'm talking about suicide, so I'm glad to use Goyish names. <laughs> Elvis Presley, the superstar. Every, every girl fainted when they saw him. The king of rock and roll. How could Elvis Presley, who has everything, kill himself? He had everything. A billion dollar house. People fainting in the street when they saw him. Really, Literally. And gets up the, and, and takes and overdoses on, on, on pills because as much as Elvis Presley made believe he was happy and wrote songs, inside, if you're cold inside, no matter what you're going to try, guys, it's not going to warm you up. You're just putting clothing on a dead, on a piece of ice. It's just going to get cold. In fact, if you wrap the ice, it melts even slower. It melts even slower than if you leave it out. And it keeps it cold. You wrap the ice, it keeps the, it keeps the cold in. 
So when you wrap the ice in your heart and your soul, you're just keeping the cold in, and therefore the drugs and the cigarettes and the drinks and the bar and all the stuff, all these layers that you try to put on to make you feel like you belong, they're not warming you up. So therefore when you wake up, you're colder than when you were before because you just wrapped the cold inside yourself. So you're more depressed, so you need to take two pills. And then you wrap it again, you need to take four pills. And then soon you need to take so many pills that the ultimate cold, which is death. And that's Amalek. So what do you do if you're cold inside and you're depressed? you got to bring the Aish back to mess up the Suffolk, to mess up Amalek. What's the Aish? Aish is Torah. Aish is Hashem. you got to bring God into your heart. you got to bring Torah into your heart. And that's the last thing that the, that, the, that the Sultan is going to tell you. And you have to understand, and this, this is the connection between, between um, Pesach and, and, um, and Purim, you have to understand that struggle, struggling, which we all go through, that's not cold. Struggling is not cold. Struggling, actually, is warmth. Because the more you struggle up the mountain, the more you sweat. The more you struggle to lift the weights, the bigger your muscles are, the more you sweat. If you don't struggle, if I want to build my muscles and I'm picking up a sitter all day like this, I ain't going to have much muscles. But if anyone who ever worked out, and in the old days where Wallace used to work out with a trainer, right? So when I used to work out and I was benching 100 pounds, he would put 10 more pounds on the ends. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? He'd say, do it. I'm like, are you crazy? And of course he would do it. And then the next day, there'd be another 10 pounds on the, on the edges. And that's how you built up. And you sweated and you schwitzed. And there's no coldness from working. There's no coldness from struggle. We are all, we are all struggling. Let me tell you something fascinating that I said on Sunday morning on my Arnava Shabbaton. Fascinating. You know, I'm a little bit out of the box. So... I'm going to try to say it in a lush and nucky, in a <coughs> clean way of expressing it. I ha- always had a question when I learned biology, because my I ask, I, you know, I'm that kind of guy that don't I don't take anything for granted. So I learned biology about reproduction, right? So we learned that a woman ovulates and she produces an egg. A man produces male cells. When a woman and man get together. There's one egg cell, and there's millions, millions of male cells. One of those male cells impregnates the egg, and that's how, how a person is conceived. So I remember when I learned it, it bothered me. Why did Hashem do that? Why didn't Hashem just create one egg cell, and the man has one male cell, and they get together, and you conceive. Why do you need that a million five hundred thousand male cells have to die? Hashem doesn't do anything for no reason. So what's going on here? One male cell, one female cell, Shalom Aleichem, and that's it, finished. And you get pregnant. Why, why did Hashem do this, that all those male cells, only one makes it? And millions die. And I remember when I learned biology, it was not a question I was going to ask my biology teacher, right? And I got an answer, I never gave a share on this, but I got an answer many years ago. 
Everything's in the Torah. The Mishnah. Pick it up. You don't got to look for. I'll tell you what the Mishnah says. This is, what I'm telling you right now, is a crazy insight. I have never said this at a share. It's a crazy insight into life. This is what the Mishnah says. I'm sorry, I think it's in Perry Gimel. Wait, no, it's Mishnah base. Perry Gimel. Paragimel Mishnah Aleph. Akavya b'mahalal Omer. Akavya b'mahalal said, "Histaka b'shloishes varim." Think about three things. If you think about these three things, you're not going to sin. It's going to keep you from sinning. Dama ayam basa. Know where you come from. Ulana tohaylech. Know where you're going. Ulufnei miat toaset itin cheshman. And know who you're going to give. In the end, you're going to have to answer to. Din means judgment. Cheshman means um, calculation. In other words, two people were Mechal Shabbos. So the din is they were Mechal Shabbos. One guy came from a Frum family. One guy came from a non-religious family. So the Cheshman is the guy who came from the Frum family is going to get, get over the head much worse than the guy who came from the non-Frum family. So there's a din. And then comes the calculation of what you deserve according to where you're up to and where you're at. Okay. So the mission says, Ma'ayim Basa. Think about three things. Where you come from. Metipa Srucha. in the English translation, is from a putrid drop. Putrid drop means from all the male cells that die. Putrid means rotted. Nothing, gone. That's not right. We don't come from all the male cells that die. We come from the one male cell that lived. What's the Mishnah saying over here? I don't come from a putrid drop. I come from the one male cell that didn't rot. Ulana to where you going? To a place of dust and worms. What's this Mishnah saying over here? The Mishnah is answering my question. The Mishnah is saying that every person needs to know where you come from. You are the only one that made it from the putrid drop. From the other million nine hundred thousand cells that tried to make it, they all died. And you made it. And what do you have to show for it at the end of life? That you made it and they didn't. So now at the end of life, you're going to give a din v'cheshmen. So Hashem, they all didn't make it. I'm the one who made it. So if you're the one who made it, Hashem wants to know, so what'd you do with it? You wasted your whole life? Then I shouldn't have let you make it. Because from every single cell comes a different DNA. So you only come from that cell that, that impregnated that egg. So the mission is telling you that the din the cheshman at the end of life, Hashem is going to say nine a million nine hundred thousand other people could have been born from that moment. And you were the one that was born. So what'd you do about it? And every single guy in this room is the one that made it. Every one of us. We are all the one that made it. And we, to make it, if you open want to do a little biology and open a biology book, we'll see the crazy struggle of the one that makes it. 
So before you're even conceived as a human being, you already struggled. You, and that HaKadosh Baruch Hu put into the Bria because that gives you the power as a human being to struggle. And therefore, had he created one male cell, you wouldn't have had to struggle. You're the only guy. There was no struggle. There was no competition. Take your time, have a cigar, a beer. There's no rush to get to the egg cell. I got time. I'm the only guy. But when there's a million, nine hundred thousand guys behind you that want to trample you and kill you and get there first, and you're fighting and you're struggling and you, and, and you make it, that puts into your being the potential to struggle and be the one. And if you don't make it, Hashem wants to know, why not? So every human being on this earth is the one that made it. And that's fascinating. And that's a huge responsibility. One out of two million? The other two million want to know, so why you, man? So what did you do with your life? We all didn't make it. You made it. So what did you do? You were a Yankee fan. That's what you did with your life. You made some money. In the end, you're going to give a din v'cheshmen to Hashem. Hashem knows which cell made it. And Hashem knows, guys, all the other cells that didn't make it, what they could have become. Every single one of them could have become a human being. Every one of them. Hashem knows in each one of them what the potential was. And he, ch- and he chose you to make it. So he knows your potential was greater than all of them. So you're going to have to give a din v'cheshmen. Why you made it and the rest of them didn't. Oh my goodness. And that struggle started before you were even born. And the struggle continues. Because a question that I've asked all my life is when I witnessed a horse being born for the first time and it came out of its mother's stomach and it stood up immediately and it had teeth. And it stood up and I said to myself, a baby's born and it has no teeth. It struggles, it has to break gum, it's gum ha- and, and then it has fever and it drools and you have to give it Tylenol. It's so painful. Why doesn't Hashem just create us like a horse with teeth? And on top of that, the baby, our baby can't walk. He has to learn how to... Turn over! Yay! And the cow standing there like, oh man, these humans are stupid. I turned over five seconds after I was born. They're, they're standing there clapping. The baby turned over. I'm a pig. And I turned over. I got no brains. And I turned over 30 seconds after I was born. And the humans have to wait six months till a kid turns over. Yay! And the dog's like, oh my goodness, they're getting all excited. He said his first word. I barked five seconds after I was born. The human being is way behind the animal. Oh, he's walking, said the horse. I walked five minutes after I was born, took this stupid kid to crawl, and then he fell a hundred times on his face, and now he's walking. I didn't fall on my face. I didn't have to crawl. I'm walking in five seconds. The human being is so way behind the animal. Way behind the animal. And the answer is, 100%, because an animal has no potential. And since it has no potential, it has no growth. Since it has no growth, it might as well be born with everything it needs. But a human being, the whole thing of a human being, the whole warmth of a human being, the whole thing is a struggle. So Hashem said, I'm not giving you teeth. And I'm not letting you walk. 
And I'm not letting you talk. And I'm not letting you crawl. And I'm not letting you put sentences together. And even when a child's born, they can't even see. Because I'm, be, I'm giving basics so that you can struggle to stand. And when you struggle to stand, you'll appreciate that you can stand. And you'll struggle to get teeth. And you'll struggle to eat hard things. Because you'll appreciate it more. Because you struggled even to become a human being. So part of being a human being is struggle. And Amalek says, no. Struggle makes you warm. Sit back, do some drugs, hang out, chill. Interesting word. The word chill mean. Ask any kids on a corner who are doing nothing with their life. What are you doing? I'm chilling. Chilling, the gematria, chilling, the gematria, Amalek. Chilling means to be cold. Amalek said, to make you cold. Chilling is Amalek. Chilling is suffolk. A person who stands on a corner and ruins his whole night means he has a suffolk. He doesn't know why he's here. Ask any child that's chilling, that's wasting any person who's chilling and wasting their life. Ask them and they'll tell you, I don't know what to do with my life, Rabbi. I'm mixed up. Suffolk. That's Amalek. That's why it's called chilling. That's why it's called the web. That's why it's called the net. What has a web? A spider. Is a spider a friendly insect? Why does it have a web? To help things out? To catch flying insects, never pour flies and other things in its web so it can slowly destroy them. The internet is called the web, not stopped for no reason, because it captures us and it slowly destroys us. What does a net do? When you go fishing, the net is the greatest enemy of the fish, not the fishing pole. Fishing pole can get one fish at a time. A net can get thousands. If you look into the words that the Gaim give these things, they don't even understand the words that they're giving. Chilling, the Amalek, Asherkoch, This is what chilling is. This is Amalek. That's what Amalek wants. I'm on the corner. I belong to a group of guys standing on the corner. What do you guys do on the corner all night? We watch our watch until it says 6 a.m., then we go to sleep. That's what we do. Doing anything, making money. No, you're talking about politics. No. You just, oh, it's only four o'clock. We got another two hours. We must stay out another two hours. Because we need to belong to the gang, the group that stays out till six o'clock in the morning. And if we come home at four, then we don't belong to any group. Because there's no four o'clock group yet. <coughs> this is the whole psychology of the world. And the only way to fight it is, again, is to have the Aish inside the person. Now you might say, whilst he made up a shear, he's out of his mind, where do you get all this stuff from? I'm going to prove to you exactly what I just said <laughs> from a Pasuk in the Torah. In Pasha's B'Shalach. It says the following. There was, in Pasha's B'Shalach, Yisrael complained that they had no water. They had no water. They said, why did you bring us to all die in thirst? Okay. Okay. They called um, this place Masa and Meriva. Why? Ariv B'nai Yisrael, because the B'nai Yisrael were fighting with Hashem. While Nasasim Hashem Lamar, and they tested Hashem saying, listen carefully, end of the Pasuk, 
Pasuk um, Zion, in Perik Yud Zion. Listen carefully. And they tested Hashem. What was their test? Hayesh Hashem bekebenu im ayin. They had doubt. Is there a God? Is God amongst us or not? That's what the Pasuk says. That was their question. What's the next Pasuk, first two words? So the Jews here at the end of this Pasuk said, is there a God amongst us or not? We're not sure about God. I prayed to him, he didn't answer, we're thirsty, right? The next two words. The minute the Jews said, we're not sure. We have doubt. We're besafek. Hayesh Hashem bekebenu im ayin. Is God here amongst us, in us? Is He in us? Is the H, is the fire in us? Is God in me? Do I have God in me? Do I have self-confidence? Do I belong to Hashem? The minute I have a suffix, if I belong to Hashem, is there Hashem? Boom! They're here. Doubt brings Amalek. That's not me. That's what the Chumr says. So, I want to end off a beautiful story Actually, two stories, but a beautiful story from the Chafetz Chaim to understand who we are as Jews. So the Chafetz Chaim says, it's such a true story. Chafetz Chaim says a story that there was a peasant who lived on a farm outside one of these cities, and the city had a huge train that would come through every day. Now, a peasant was very, he was very fascinated with his train, the smoke and all the beautiful cars and he decides he's going to save up all his money from his, from his vegetables and his, and his gardens, and he's going to buy himself a ticket. So he comes into town, and he comes to the, to the place they sell the tickets, and he says, my whole life I'm saving up for this trip. How much is the ticket for the best seat in the train? The guy says, we have a gold ticket. It's $100 in those days. Gold ticket, it's like the birth, the, the, the first car, you have beds, and like they serve you cocktails and meal it's like it's like a crazy so he the nicest ticket is $100 he bought the ticket the train's going tomorrow he goes home packs up all his stuff his dream his fantasy he's going to go on a train first time in his life comes to the train station a little bit early trains in you know the locomotive's right he sees like eight guys <coughs> take their luggage and the last car on the train was the cattle car all the horses and pigs and cows are in. And he sees these eight guys with their luggage running onto the cattle car. He doesn't know. He never went on a train in his life. He jumps onto the cattle car. Now, he sees they're all hiding underneath the animals, underneath the hay. He goes underneath the animals, goes underneath the hay. And the train pulls out of the station. And it's going. And they're, they're making all over the place these animals. The manure is all over the place. It stinks in there. It's, he's dodging manure. That's what he's doing, right? He's going from one cow to the next cow. Forget about it, right? It stinks. And he's like, it's amazing they charge so much money, you know, <laughs> to travel like this. But what does he know? They come to the first station. Train stops. Conductor slides open the door, comes onto the cattle car, and starts going through the guys. Get up! Let me see your ticket. Guy's like, I don't have a ticket. He rolls him off the train on his head. You, over there behind that cow, get up! Let me see your ticket. I don't have a ticket. Throws him off. Comes to him. Right? He's all full of manure. Hay all over his clothing and everything. You! Let me see your ticket. He says, sure. Conductor's like, this guy has a ticket? Like, what's he doing here, right? Pulls out. Gold ticket. 
He goes, oh my God, mister. The first car, we knew, we heard that there's one guy that bought the gold ticket. We thought you missed the train. The first car was for you with a bed and a couch and a waitress and food. What are you doing in this car? He says, what do you mean, what am I doing in this car? I came to the station. I didn't see anyone getting into the first car. I saw everyone getting into this car. So I jumped into this car. He goes, you idiot. (laughs) Your ticket is only from that station to the station that we're in. I'm really sorry, but you have to get off the train. Says the Chafetz Chaim, Neyudik. Chafetz Chaim says a Jewish soul comes to this world. You bought a ticket. You're a Jew. You have a gold ticket to to be in the front of the train with Torah and mitzvahs and tzitzis and mezuzah and tefillin and davening. You have the golden ticket for this trip. But what happens? You watch the Goyim, you watch the whole world, what they're doing. And they're jumping into parties, and they're jumping into this, and they're jumping into that, and you you jump in. You jump in, and you join them, and you live your whole life like them. And then at the end of the ride, when a person dies, and he comes to Shemayim, and the Malach is standing there, and he's like, oh, this guy, he's not Jewish. No mitzvahs, no Torah, no Shabbos, no this. Oh, um, we'll send them to the Canadian and Gehenna of the non-Jew, which exists. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm not like all the other guys that are on this line. I, I have a ticket. What do you mean you have a ticket? You have a ticket. What do you look like this for? What do you live like this for? He goes, what do you mean I have a ticket? And he pulls out his neshama. And it's a Jewish neshama. Says you came up, K on it. And they're like, Are you crazy? You had that neshama your whole life? And you went with the cattle? But 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 everybody did that. Everybody was assimilating. Everybody was being like the Goyim. Oh, we had something totally different reserved for you. Okay, so so can I can I get I didn't know. So can I have a can I go on that ride? Sorry. It was from birth till 80 years old. You got off the train, man. Ride's over. Too late. So Marshall from the Chafetz Chaim, a hundred years ago, because he saw the Haman, he saw the assimilation, he saw what was going to happen, he saw what we're going through. And it's a struggle, and it's a crazy struggle to be different, because we always want to be the same. We want to always be like everybody else. It's very hard to be different. It's very hard not to smoke when your friends are smoking. It's very hard not to drink when your friends are drinking. It's very hard not to gamble when your friends are gambling. Because you want to belong. Even if it's bad for you. You want to belong. It's a struggle. And struggling is very, very hard. It's not an easy thing. I'll tell you a beautiful question on, on the Haggadah. It's very connected. You say, we all say Manashtana, right? Manashtana. What's the first question of Manashtana? Every night we eat chametz matzah. Tonight matzah. What's the second question? Every other night we eat vegetables. We eat our veggies. Tonight we eat mara. Third question. Every other night we dip once. Tonight we dip twice. Fourth question. Every other night I sit straight or my mother smacks me in the head. Tonight I lean. Totally the wrong order, boys. 
When do you eat matzah? My su'uda, all the way in the middle, not even the middle, two-thirds into the Haggadah, you eat matzah. You tell me you saw the matzah. Most of us don't see the matzah. It's in the Cairo. So you didn't see the matzah yet. Okay, number one. Number two, when do you eat mara? Eat mara at the same time you eat matzah. Two-thirds in the Haggadah, right before the su'uda. When do you dip? All the way in the beginning of the Haggadah. You dip the kapas in the salt water. When do you lean? The first thing you do is you make Kiddush. And you lean while you make Kiddush. So the last question is the first thing you do. And the first question is the last thing you do. According to the way the Haggadah goes, you should ask. All other nights I have to sit straight. Dad, you just drank wine and you were leaning. What's up with that? All other nights we dip once. Hey, Dad, we dipped salt water in the coppers and I see you still have another dip. And the third question should be, all other nights, right, what do we eat first, the moro or the matzah? We eat the matzah, all other nights, and then the last question should be moro. Why is it in this order? It's a wrong, totally wrong order. And the answer is that the first two questions of matzah and moro is pain, is struggle. Matzah, matzah represents pain. It's poor, it's just water and flour, it doesn't rise. Person with low self-esteem, you, you don't, it, it doesn't rise. It's lechamayni. It's broken. It's shibud. Matzah is shibud. Marar is pain. Is bitterness. Dipping is kingliness. Is royalty. So the first two questions represent struggle and pain. The second two questions, the dipping and the leaning, represents royalty, being a king. The Baal Haggadah teaches us, guys, you can't become free. You can't become a king unless you struggle first. First comes the matzah and mara. Then comes the dipping and the leaning. And therefore the Haggadah begins with all the pain that we went through. At the end of the Haggadah comes Hallel. Why don't you start with Hallel? Thank you Hashem, I'm here tonight. Uh Uh-uh. You can't get to Hallel. You can't get to freedom. You can't get to self-confidence without struggle. You can't become a good ball player without practice. You can't get muscles without working hard and exercising. That's the way Hashem created us. And therefore, the Baal is telling us that the beginning is a struggle. You have to struggle. The struggle is what brings you to your greatness. Don't let the Amalek tell you that the struggle should bring you to depression. Struggle brings heat. The more you struggle, the warmer you get. The less you struggle, the colder you get. Anyone who knows anything about first aid knows that if you're freezing to death, the first thing you need to do is to keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. The minute you stop moving, you are dead. Move, sweat, run. If you don't, you will freeze to death. The struggle brings warmth. The sitting in depression in your bed under the blanket half a day brings inner coldness, brings death, brings suffering, brings amalek. Timcha ezecher amalek. Destroy that coldness. Emcha, destroy it. Wipe it out from within. Because no matter how many layers you put on to keep warm, the only warmth that you can have is your own. You can destroy yourself and you can create yourself. And you're the only one that can do that. So, he ends off and he says an interesting story about Napoleon that 
<coughs> this is a true story. There was somewhere in Russia, Napoleon and his army, they were surrounding one of the big st- cities in Russia, and it was getting very cold, and the men were getting very sick. And they had to attack the city. And the generals of Napoleon told them that if we attack the city, and the city is strong, and they put up a fight, and it'll take us more than a week to get into the city, we're going to lose everything. So we need to find out if the city is strong or not. So Napoleon and his general got into peasants' clothing, out of their army clothing, into peasants' clothing, and snuck into the city to see how the city is doing. There's a true story. And they came to a, an inn, a bar. And they walked into the inn. Napoleon sat down. He told the general, there was no one, he was dressed as a regular person, he told the general, go get me a, a, a thing of beer. And they were waiting to get the thing of beer, and there was a bunch of soldiers, Russian soldiers, that were sitting also in that bar. And one of them recognized Napoleon and turned around to all the other soldiers. Now, they were talking by themselves. I didn't eat for a week. I didn't drink for a week. I didn't have food for a week. And Napoleon saw that the town was very weak. They, weren't, they had no food. They had nothing. So he was very happy. <coughs> and all of a sudden, the soldier got up and said, that's Napoleon. And all the other soldiers looked at him and were about to get up when the general that was with Napoleon jumped up and smacked Napoleon across the face and said, didn't I tell you to get me a drink? What is taking so long for getting me a drink? And he hit him again and he threw him down to the floor. Napoleon was a little guy, right? And then this general kicked Napoleon in the ribs so hard. He said, you, in in language, you blank, blank, piece of worthless garbage. And all the soldiers were standing there, including that soldier. And he picked him up and said, you know what? I don't need this garbage, and threw him out the front door. The general threw Napoleon out the front door and ran out after him, got onto the carriage, and took off. The other soldiers said to the soldier, Yeah, Napoleon, you haven't eaten in a long time, man. You are seeing things, baby. And they just sat down and continued eating. When they came back to the French headquarters, the general figured, he's finished. He kicked him in the ribs. He smacked him in the face. He punched him. He's dead. Finished. He's done. You, You don't do that to Napoleon. So when he got back, he said to Napoleon, I'm begging you for my life. I'm begging you for my life. That I kicked you and I hit you and I, I can't apologize enough. Napoleon said, what are, you, are you, what are you, a fool? You are begging me for my life? I am now going to make you my number one general. You, by kicking me and punching me and making me look like a fool and throwing me out the front door, you saved my life. You saved the whole French army. You are now going to be my number one general. Sometimes, guys, the smack that we get and the hit that we get and the struggle that Hashem gives us is there to save, not sometimes, it's always, to save our lives. Struggle is good. You've been struggling since before you were conceived. And you made it. Everyone in this room, you made it. Now you got to give Din V'cheshman. you got to go home and say, there are two million of us that didn't make it. I made it. What am I doing with my life? That's the din v'cheshmin that a person has to give. And don't let the suffix get you. Not for one second. Struggle. Struggle is good. Struggle accomplishes. I'm going to give everyone a bracha. And my bracha is from the oyster.
the oyster is a something that lives in the water that's inside the oyster oh well that's not actually it's not actually it's an oyster okay um, is a something that looks like a, the yellow of an egg it's a very soft mushy thing Hashem created the oyster but the oyster produces something that's very beautiful from this ugly little mushy little thing that the guy eat we don't eat comes a pearl and I always wondered why Hashem do that every jewel in the world you know you go to the Yichud room and you get married you give the girl pearls pearls are very beautiful there's freshwater pearls and there's seawater and saltwater pearls and extremely expensive very beautiful jewels if you ever look at a pearl it's gorgeous pearls pearls have been around forever and I never understood why diamonds come from the ground rubies come from the ground sapphires come from the ground right gold, silver, copper comes from the ground why does Hashem come up with this idea one jewel comes from a living thing why did he just make pearls come from pearls come from the ground so I studied the, I studied the, the oyster and the pearl to understand why would Hashem do this so I'll tell you a fascinating story a, a, an oyster the way it eats is it opens its shell and the water runs, when it opens its shell, the water runs through the shell. And the oyster catches plankton, little teeny, you can't even see it, right? Little teeny things that are in the ocean, that when it's running through the shell, it takes it out of the water and eats it. And then when it's finished eating, it closes the shell and there's no more water in there. Sometimes, being that it's an ocean, when this water is rushing through the cell, through the shell, a piece, a grain of sand gets stuck in the oyster. Now, you can imagine if a grain of sand gets stuck in your eye, right? An oyster is even softer than your eye. Because it's the yellow of an egg. It's mushy. It's very soft. So the pain of a grain of sand stuck in an oyster is like walking around with a sword through your chest. It's crazy pain. So what did Hashem do? Hashem gave the power of this little oyster thing to secrete, to, to, to secrete a white um, liquid to cover that grain of sand because the grain of sand is very sharp and to go around that grain of sand and make it very smooth so that it doesn't hurt the oyster anymore and the more the bigger the grain of sand the more it irritates the oyster the more the oyster secretes the bigger the pearl and no two pearls are alike they are a little, they're, they're always a little bit different because no two grains of sand are alike. So the, the bigger the aggravation, the bigger the irritation, the bigger the jewel it produces. What a Musser Haskell. What a lesson. You can't get that from a diamond in the ground or a ruby in the ground. What an amazing lesson from the Bria that Hashem created. That if you have an oyster that was never aggravated, it had the best life. Never aggravated, never irritated, never got stuck with a grain of sand. You don't even have to bother opening the shell. There's no pearl in there. So yeah, it's walking around like, what a great life. I never had, a, I never got irritated. But what did you produce? You produced nothing. And the oyster that got irritated produced the most beautiful jewel in the world. And the bigger the irritation, the bigger the jewel. The more the struggle, boys, 
the greater the reward. And that's the story of Mashiach. When it says that we are in the times of Mashiach, that means we are in the greatest time of struggle. Because Mashiach is the jewel. And to bring the jewel finally to this world, we have to struggle more than any other generation that was before us. It's not a holocaust. It's a spiritual holocaust that we're in, not a physical holocaust. Noah Weinberg said, the spiritual holocaust is much worse than the physical holocaust. Because the physical holocaust is finite. You killed six million, you killed six million. The spiritual, a Jewish man marries a non-Jewish woman, from then on, the assimilation, the children are all Goyim. How many Jews just got killed? When a Jewish man marries a non-Jewish woman, how many Jews just got killed? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know how many children they would have had, how many children they would have had, and how many children they would have had. Could be a million, a million people just got killed. Do the math. 13 plus 13 plus 13 as the generations go. It's very easy. You get to 100,000 very fast. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a Holocaust with a number that is infinite. I have no idea. And, and that struggle that Klai Yisrael is going through now is what's going to bring Mashiach. And it's very interesting. I saw in a Sefer, <coughs> who's going to get credit for bringing Mashiach? Moshe Rabbeinu? No. Chavetz Chaim? No. We are. The last generation when Mashiach finally comes is the generation that gets the credit for suffering and creating the pearl called Mashiach. May we all see that pearl called Mashiach. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.